1: Hi there, and welcome back to Life Out Loud, a literary nonfiction podcast through which we tell true, maybe all too true, stories. I'm Sophia, one of your hosts tonight.
2: Hello, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Angel, and I am indeed new to the podcast. It feels so good to be here for my very first episode.
3: Hi, everyone. My name is Amy, and I'm very excited
0: to be back with y'all. And I'm Karen. Thank you for joining us tonight on the sixth episode of our sixth season entitled Toward the Great Escape.
4: And I'm Bilal. In this episode, two authors seek help for very different circumstances to escape pivotal and overwhelming moments of their lives.
5: And I'm Kira. Now let's get into the first story of the night.
4: This story is by a new author to the podcast named Naya L.
5: Naya L., a New
3: York native, is a second semester senior majoring in English and minoring in art at John Jay College. As both an artist, writer, and an avid consumer of media, she loves diversifying her knowledge and gaining inspiration for new pieces. When she isn't binging horror movies, working on a manuscript, or learning new languages, Naya can be found scouring the city for her next favorite ramen shop. Or relaxing downtown, watching local buskers with a cup of tea in her hand.
5: Now, let's take a listen to Naya's piece entitled, Get a Room.
6: (sighs) This wasn't the first time I got locked in school after hours. Security wasn't usually so relaxed, but every now and then they missed a couple of us in the building after clubs and tutoring. I was lying on the floor, swinging my feet as I flipped through a book I wasn't really reading. The words on the page were a blur. I started picking at the carpet with a pencil when I heard rapid footsteps, and she came around the corner at full speed, narrowly missing the bookshelf in her haste. Bro! She dropped to her knees and crawled to me, russet brown eyes wide with disbelief, lips curled with excitement. What? Our eyes met briefly, and I went back to skimming, dragging my finger across the page at a leisurely pace. She groaned and snatched my book from me, motioning to hit me with it. I flinched, laughing, and feigned a punch before snatching it back. What? I choked, struggling to keep my voice low. We're locked in, she said. Where, in this room? In the school. My mouth fell open and I immediately laughed, sure she was lying. We got locked in together before. There's no way it could happen twice. Gabby, stop. No, we're not. I stood and dusted my skirt off. Then my blouse. I was itchy from head to toe. Fully deserved since I chose to lie on my filthy library floor. I pulled my thigh-high socks up and over my knees, hiding the band under my skirt out of habit. Even though there was no faculty in the library, I never failed to hide them. Socks of any sort weren't allowed. Gabby watched me for a moment before swatting my thigh. Swear to God, I'm serious. She began to pack shoving her notebooks and tablet into her bag haphazardly. She pulled the zipper across her finger and cursed under her breath, sticking her wounded appendage in her mouth. I frowned at her from where I stood, trying to decide if she was telling the truth. If it wasn't true, this was a great performance, but then again, why would she lie? Knowing Gabby, it was unlikely. We'd been friends for three years now. That's enough for me to know her habits. She tucked her hair behind her ear, brows knit, lip held tightly between her teeth. She was stressed, rightfully so. Time slipped away from us, and, unlike me, she had a mother that liked her home before dark. If she was a minute late, she'd face her mother's unrelenting wrath, and sunset had already begun. I didn't understand why people were so hard on her. It felt as if the only person that really got her was me. Why was that? Gabby was sweet, that's how we became friends. We met in a Starbucks a couple blocks away from school. We bonded briefly over coffee and it was in a word, a whisper. I said something that only she noticed, something about the amount of calories in a frappuccino and she gave me a look that was more than knowing. She told me to text her when I got home. we have been inseparable since. She was radiant and personable and very, very friendly. We'd split gummy bears at lunch and trade lip gloss throughout the day. We'd do our work together between classes. I'd slip her my chemistry notes, and she had my back in APUS history. We were best friends, but she treated everyone well. She was giving, kind, and never without a smile. She'd help whoever needed it. She was all those wonderful things, but that didn't stop some people from finding chinks in her armor, places to hammer away. Gabby wasn't bullied too badly— but the people that bugged her were popular enough to make her feel like a bug under UV light. When they did it, others watched, and boy, did they laugh. Girls can be catty, but can you imagine how ruthless an all-girls high school can be? It got rough for Gabby, and it was always the same few girls tormenting her. The three I hated the most liked to make a spectacle of her, point and laugh and jeer at her when her back was turned. Allison, Elena, and Hunter. They just adored Gabby. Elena would initiate and Allison would back her up with supportive "Mm mm-hmms and the occasional that's right babe. Hunter would sit back and laugh as loudly as she could to draw all eyes averted to the scene. I always offered to break their noses for her but Gabby would tell me to let it go. Just thinking about them made my eye twitch. Who are they to talk? Allison's bad bleach job made her hair look like wheat. Elena wore the same beat-up Jordans every day and had the gall to talk about Gabby's clothes. There was never a day where Hunter's makeup wasn't fucking cakey, and she carried around a massive MK bag every day. Was there never a wipe in there? A mirror? Something? They had to be jealous of Gabby. That's the only thing that made sense to me, but Gabby didn't agree. Because of all this, she was often a nervous wreck. Just like now. Fine, let's go. I'd never unpacked my bag, so I waited beside her as she finished readying her things. She'd slipped her blazer on by the time I looked at her. We headed towards the door in silence before I thought to check the library for any other stragglers. Let's make sure it's empty, I said, and she nodded, following behind me. We walked past every bookshelf in the room, peering down each aisle to ensure they were empty. We'd gotten to the back of the room when I heard a sound. It was faint, like a shuffling, the sound of shoes against carpet, and it wasn't coming from us. I looked at Gabby and she looked at me, eyebrows raised. We approached the sound in complete silence. It was coming from behind a bookshelf in a small corner of the library used to store carts and old, broken furniture. We approached the shelf and I peered into the gap between two books, searching for the source. Maybe it's a rat, I thought, almost stepping away before I caught a glimpse of hair, a brown tuft, and the edge of a blue cotton collar. I rubbed mine between my fingers and squinted, crouching down to get a closer look. Past dust-covered texts and bent chair legs, I saw the back of a sweater and a small hand clutching the width of it. My eyes wandered further right and noticed their intertwined legs, One, pantyhose clad, the other in black pants. Two pairs of shoes were placed neatly beside them. One in black leather, the other a pair of sneakers. Just out of sight, underneath the desk, sat a bag, big and blue. Before I could tell her what I'd seen, Gabby gripped my shoulder with startling force, eyes glued to the sight. It felt as if it happened in slow motion. I couldn't rise to my feet fast enough. I couldn't put my palm over her mouth in time. By the time my hand reached her face, she'd already let out a gasp that nearly deafened me. I winced and looked to see if the legs had stilled. A moment later, I met a pair of eyes and cursed under my breath. The next five minutes were the fastest I'd ever known. I remember the soles of my feet tingling as they pounded the floor the sides of my toes rubbed raw by my stiff new shoes. I remember rounding a corner too quickly and skidding to a stop, slamming my elbow into a wall. I remember Gabriella's hair in my mouth when she slid into me and hit the wall, too. Thank God we'd managed to slow down. The stairs a few steps away were steep. Why'd you have to be so loud? Was my only coherent thought. The rest drowned out by a chorus of curses as we took the steps three at a time, down one Two, three flights to the first floor. Stop! I had hurtled towards the front doors and both hands pressed firmly against it when I realized why she called out to me. Locked, I whispered. I stood there breathing slowly, book bags sliding off my shoulders, socks at my ankles. I turned to Gabby and watched her chest rise and fall. Her eyes darted about wildly. And she dug her nails into her thighs. Was that? Yeah, it was them. I confirmed her fears. We knew what we saw. That was Elena, but that other girl definitely wasn't Allison. Gabby's cheeks burned bright and I set my jaw. I wasn't going to let them catch her. They'd never know that she even saw them. In the silence that swallowed our school whole, I shut my eyes and listened through the boundless quiet for anything, hushed voices, hurried footsteps, the ragged pattern of sudden breaths. Sh-. I put up a finger and kept my eyes shut. There they were, low voices coming from the staircase. They weren't that close, maybe a floor away, but they were coming. This was the exit we were all supposed to use. Not today, though. Come on, I whispered, motioning for Gabby to follow, leading her down one more floor to the basement. You see, the cool thing about her school was that there were all sorts of exits and places you wouldn't think they'd be. Lots of people didn't know about this one, but I did. I used it during practice all the time. Gabby walked behind me slowly, her hesitance to follow me momentarily outweighing her fear of the girls a mere floor away. Where? just trust me, I hissed. I turned to find her at the top of the staircase while I waited at the bottom. She swayed side to side, looking longingly at the locked front doors. She snapped out of her stupor when she heard shoes slapping the linoleum a few feet away. Now we were running, down the hall, through the double doors leading to the cafeteria, and through that too to the staircase hidden behind a thick red curtain on the opposite side of the room. We ran through it, and once Gabby came barreling in behind me, I grabbed the cloth to still its movements. I released it slowly, raising my hands as if admitting surrender, but I was far from that. I led the way through the storage area, through a sea of extra chairs, tables, and surprisingly, pool cues. I was sure those were stored somewhere else. In the back corner was a staircase, the final staircase we'd have to climb. It connected to the one by the gym and every other floor of this building. But the difference was that the exit was only accessible down here. Gabby gasped softly behind me when she saw the exit sign from under the harsh glow of fluorescent lights. The alarm! Her sentence was cut short when I rammed myself into it, throwing the door open. She followed behind me quickly and I forced it shut listening for the click that let me know it locked. Then we took off again, down one of the longest blocks on 56th Street. When we reached the corner, we stopped, feeling safe amongst the commuters encircling us. How'd you know that would work? Gabby gasped, hand to her chest. Emergency exits are never locked. I stuttered, doubled over. And I never stayed after school again, not even for a friend.
1: Wow, Naya, that's <laughs> such a good story. Yeah. Yes. I want to start off by saying to you that this really feels like reading a mystery novel for me. And yeah. I'm impressed with a lot of the things that you do here, but I especially want to draw attention to your ability as an author to control the tension that you build in this piece. And I don't know if it's just like being at school after hours is a spooky thing in and of itself, but reading this, I feel like I'm on the edge of my seat, like wondering what's gonna happen next. And since you have such a grasp on the arc of this story, I wanna get the author's perspective, I'm wondering do you think it's possible to write tension into any piece or does the subject matter of the story have to be inherently tense in order for it to read like yours does?
6: That's a really good question. Um, I think that tension lies in everything in different degrees. Mm. Um, The situation does matter, of course, so something like this isn't as tense as maybe, like, a casual job interview, but it's all in how you, like, set the atmosphere and how you write it. You can make anything sense. This is tense for me right now, but it's not tense in the same way, so.
0: Uh,
6: It's a good way to frame it.
0: Right.
4: Yeah, well, you know, you, like, your story was really intense, but, you know, through that story and that experience, you found a lot of information on like the people who were bullying your friend and you and I wanted to ask like knowing something that big on like your worst enemy uh it can really change like sort of the landscape of of uh power, the power balance between you and the enemy uh if you were to use said information on said enemy you know to like you know make them stop bothering you were you ever tempted to use such a secret against the bullies? Um, did knowing something like this, like just knowing it, change the way you perceived the bullies or dealt with them?
6: Um, the information didn't change my perception of them. And like, of course, I thought about it. I thought it would have been funny to expose. But um, I had to think more of my friend and how would it affect her? Right. Because I wasn't intensely bullied by those girls. And honestly, what they had to say about me just rolled off my back. They would have terrorized my friend so it was mm. in her best interest for me to stay silent and just sweep it under the rug.
1: Mm. That takes the bigger person in that situation because some of us wouldn't uh, take the high road like that. <laughs>
6: <laughs> I tried and I really tried I was just thinking about her and I held my tongue for years. Hey Nai, how you doing? Hi. So this
2: story <laughs> this story was very well written. Uh, This story was really descriptive and visual throughout as well. Uh, I really noticed that about your piece. Uh, As you know, uh, I am a dude that likes to really analyze into lines and stuff like that. And you know, there was this one line in particular where you say, and I quote, the next five minutes were the fastest I'd ever known. I remember the soles of my feet tingling as they pounded the floor. It evoked a sharp feeling and it puts us right into the story with you as if the events are happening to us as well. With that being said, my question to you is, as a writer, why did you choose to incorporate such descriptive language into the story?
6: That's another good question, Um, because these things are tangible and understandable for readers. A lot of us know what it's like to put on a really tight pair of leather shoes and like Mm -hmm. get corns from having to wear them for nine hours a day. So I just thought the more that I included that people could feel or smell or touch, the better it would be for everyone's reading experience.
1: Yes, everyone who's went to Catholic school knows that feeling.
2: (laughs) Yo, facts.
5: (laughs) So with that being said, Naya, what, if anything, would you like listeners to take away
1: from your story?
6: I'm stumped. Um, Hmm. Well, for one, you don't have to do what I did. If it's in your best interest to expose your bullies and leave with the last laugh, go for it. I think it's funny. <laughs>
0: um, I,
6: I also think that obviously protecting and treasuring your close friends are, is really important. So mm-hmm. if you have the opportunity to ensure someone's safety, especially someone important to you, try and do that if you can. And I think that's what I want readers to leave with.
5: Yeah. And also sometimes a piece is just purely entertaining too. Yeah. You know, yeah. like, and, and this has a little bit of both, you know. <laughs> or as, as Angel says, Angel, remember in class, what did you use to the call boom it? <laughs> The <laughs> boom
2: factor. The boom factor.
5: Yeah. He'd you be like,
2: that. this Definitely story has had... a
5: boom factor.
2: <laughs> yeah, 100%. 100%. I could give that boom (laughs) factor to your story, Naya.
5: Congratulations. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love it,
0: I love it. Um, With that, Naya, thank you so much for being here today and for sharing
6: this story with us. We thoroughly loved it. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really nice.
3: This story is by an author who is choosing to remain anonymous.
4: The author wrote this piece to inspire others to share their story. Her struggle with mental health and continued denial of treatment only made her circumstances worse during her stay at the psychiatric hospital. She hopes others will read this story and see that reaching out for help is not something to be ashamed of, but something to be proud of.
5: A warning that this story touches on very sensitive topics that may be difficult to hear listener discretion is advised
1: now let's take a listen to anonymous's story entitled
7: there's been a mistake all right there's been a huge mistake i don't belong here i thought that was abundantly clear but apparently i was wrong i'm wearing blue paper scrubs and sticky socks The rubbery bottoms of the socks squeak as they peel up from the yellow-tinted floors, with each step. I obediently follow the lady in front of me. She looks like Jane Lynch as the cheerleading coach in Glee. Her blonde bob haircut lays over her head like Trump's toupee. She wears a tracksuit, velcro sneakers, and a whistle around her neck. I don't know what she would need the whistle for, so I keep my eyes down. We walk down this corridor for what feels like a half hour before she stops in front of a set of double doors, those which are completely handleless. She shoves her wrinkly hand into her pocket and retrieves an ID badge. She jams it towards the door and a loud click answers her action. I walk through the oversized metal opening. My sticky socks leave the plastic tiles and greet the carpet-covered concrete. Jane motions for me to stand in front of her and I do. The door closes behind me and clicks shut. To my right hangs a wall-mounted flat screen. To my left is a small room with a desk, two chairs, board games, puzzles, and books. The light in the tiny room is so dim that I can barely make out the colored pencils and paper scattered along the desk. The only thing the room needs is an ashtray and some cinematic flickering for it to double as an interrogation set. At this point, i I'm so cold, I begin to shake. Something about the paper scrubs and braless temperament makes me shake even harder, which I try not to let Jane see. The sooner everyone realizes that I'm fine, the sooner I'm out of this hellhole. I turn back to look if there are any windows in the main room, but I see something worse. At least 15 others, all staring at me. Jane walks in front of me and gives me another motion to follow her. She walks me past the interrogation room and straight to what looks like a doctor's office check-in lobby. She says something to the people on the other side, and we walk through another set of double doors. The doors click open and click shut. Jane leads me to our final destination and closes the door behind us. This time, there is no click. There is no lock on the door. She starts asking me a million questions. She asked me to take my clothes off. She asked me my weight. She asked me what kind of toothpaste I use. What kind of toothpaste? How the fuck is that gonna help her assess my well-being? I want to scoff and roll my eyes, but I don't. I can't risk doing anything that makes me look, well, look like anything but normal. I figure if I can just calmly go through all the motions, soon enough, it'll be clear that I am the victim of some overzealous school counselors. I undo the scrubs and stand there, naked. She asked me if I have any cuts or scars. She asked me my age. She asked me if I have any other clothes. She asked me if my parents will bring me some. My parents? Yeah, of course they'll bring me some. I'm sure they'd love to play the role of the troubled teen savior. I bet they would love to see me caged up here. If they were good parents, they would have believed me but they're not. They can't make their marriage work, and they can't work together to help me. (sighs) Jane checks over my body like she's hunting for treasure. She never strikes gold because I don't belong here. I don't cut or burn myself. I have the occasional scratch or bruise from jujitsu, but nothing self-inflicted. Nothing to see here, Jane. Move on. I want to scream, but I'm quiet. I even nod and smile politely a few times while she violates me. I stand there for another 10 or 15 minutes before I can put the scratchy paper clothes back on my body. Jane leaves the room so I can be humiliated by myself. This is the first time in 36 hours that I have been alone. Last week at Chilton Hospital, I wasn't allowed to be alone. I had to have a nurse in my room with me at all times. It didn't matter if my parents were with me or if I was by myself. I was always being watched. And I didn't get why. I wasn't going to bomb the hospital. I wasn't going to grab a bunch of needles and assassinate the doctors. I wasn't going to hurt myself or anyone else. I didn't have a plan. I was trying to go home, be normal, go back to my dog in training, go back to my friends in my senior year. Go back to my little sister. Jane walks back into the room and gives me the follow me signal. We walk back toward the counter. The only thing separating me and the other kids is a single locked door. Jane's ID scans and she ushers me into the center of the room. Everyone, this is our new friend. Make her feel welcome. Jane says but all I hear is fresh meat. Jane walks away, and the other kids run over like I'm a new toy. I'm Chris, one kid says. He's wearing a black tank top, sweatpants, and black socks. He has a Justin Bieber haircut and braces to top off his emo facade. I stick my hand out to shake his. He backs away? What? We don't touch here, he says, pointing to my extended arm. Um, okay, no touching. Got it, Chris. Way to take this shit to the next level. I take too long to retract my display of camaraderie and Chris walks away from me. The other kids disperse. I try to find a corner to sit in, but there aren't any. Every wall ends in an obtuse angle, which means corners are obsolete. I scan the room looking for some way to isolate with no luck. A centipede-looking spiral of chairs winds its way through the room, each chair connected at the arm. I plop myself into an end seat of the row beside the TV wall and scrunch my knees to my chest with my head down. So, no touching, huh? That would have been helpful to know before I embarrassed myself in front of everyone else. What other rules am I missing? And what time is it? I lift my head and look around for a clock. I search the perimeter and again. No luck. I drop my head back into my knees. This is disorienting. I don't know the rules or the time or what's happening next or why I'm even here. Seems like nothing but control tactics. That's fine. I've already decided to treat this like a test. When everyone realizes that this is a huge mistake, they're going to feel so stupid. They'll be begging me not to sue the hospital, or the school for that matter. I'll get myself emancipated from my parents. I'll probably even write a news article so everyone can see how badly these idiotic adults fucked up. Two minutes or four hours pass when I hear, Group time! I wipe my eyes and watch the other kids scurry out like rats. The kids each run to a bench and start dragging them around the room. My bench is against the wall, which means I won't need to move. A tall guy with long hair walks to the center of the now-U-shaped chair configuration. His eyes are red, his dress shirt baggy and untucked. Alright, group. Let's get started. Start what? I have no idea. This guy looks like a modern shaggy from Scooby-Doo, and I'm shocked to see that he's seemingly in charge. I clock the whole situation as more bullshit. Who wants to start with the rules? Shaggy asks the group. Ten of the fifteen kids raise their hands. You go ahead, Chris, Shaggy instructs. No touching, emo kid Chris says, like a trained animal. Shaggy points to the kid next to Chris, and I realize we're going around the room. No cursing, another kid recites. No bullying, no glorifying experiences, no gum. I quickly count ahead like I would in school whenever I had to read aloud, realizing it's almost my turn. I try to think of what to say, but I can't. In school, I always know what's going on. I can plan my answers easily, commit it to memory, and be completely prepared. Even without notice, I always know the answers. But here? I don't know the rules. No one told me any. What the fuck is even going on? I miss the next few answers, and suddenly it's my turn already. Shaggy looks at me, and I shrug my shoulders. He sees my attire and realizes I'm new. I'm still in these itchy scrubs because my parents are taking their sweet time to drop off my regular clothes. I haven't showered in three days, but my hair is neat and my face isn't broken out. Some of those kids look like they haven't showered since the dinosaurs. That's okay. Next group, you'll know the rules. Next group? I don't think so. I give this a day, tops. My dad will come and pick me up, and this, this will be over. No one here will even remember me tomorrow, and honestly, I feel badly for them, knowing they're not getting out of here, but I am. I'll be back at my house, petting Jack, freshly showered, while these poor fuckers are playing their hundredth game of Monopoly. Great job, everyone. Now let's go around one more time. This time, tell us your name and why you're here. Christopher, you can start. This is my chance. I didn't think it would come so soon, but I finally get to tell someone I don't belong here. I start reciting my answer in my head. My name is Chris, I hear, and I'm here for a suicide attempt. Whoa, Chris, didn't see that coming, okay. Kyle is skinny with freckles all over his face. He looks like a kid I know who is super into motocross. Ten bucks says he owns a tractor and camo Crocs. The kids continue. Suicidal ideation. Depression. I brought a gun to school. Sexual assault, the girl says next to me. Finally. It's my turn. Everyone is staring at me all over again. The mystery of the girl who doesn't know the rules is finally going to be put to an end. Or... So they think. I don't know why I'm here, I say. You don't? Shaggy asks. No, I don't know. Oh, okay. Maybe we can talk after group and figure it out. Why don't you go on, Aaron? Perfect. Shaggy can help me. I clock him as the type who will actually listen and I start to cheer up a little bit. As soon as I can explain that Miss Jane, the school misunderstood me, and my parents are splitting so they're too busy with their crap, he'll likely tell Jane. Maybe he'll even call my parents or just sneak me out. Group continues as I become familiar with the environment. There are only two phones on the wall by the doctor's office station. There's only one window, which is frosted over so I can't see out of it to get a good sense of time. But I can tell it's not too dark. When I was in the ambulance, it was already 2 p.m., so it has to be later than 4.30. Halloween is Monday, and it's already Wednesday? I'm too old to trick-or-treat, but that post-Halloween discount on candy is a must. I guess it's about 5.30 by now, so I just have to make it through this group? The kids go around and talk about coping and not lashing out or something. I sit quietly, feeling badly for them especially the girl who's chewing her hair. I'm not like these kids, and it shows. I'm sitting with my feet on the floor and my hands folded. Almost every kid is some sort of upside down in their chair. These kids can't even sit still. They're all wearing normal clothes, but that's not very difficult when your parents are bringing you shit to wear. The difference between me and them is that they're all fine with being here. Like it's a great place. I know better than that. This place is a glorified prison for kids. All right, group is over. You guys can hang out until dinner, Shaggy announces. Okay, so it's late afternoon. Got it. The other kids start moving the chairs back to the original spots, and I walk to Shaggy, ready to clear this all up. Hey, new fish. What's going on? Shaggy asks. I think there's been a mistake, I start I don't know why I'm here Have you talked to Dr. Shanty? No, I haven't Who is that? He's the psychologist on the unit I'm sure you'll see him soon That should clear everything up Shaggy turns around and starts to walk toward the counter That's it? Wait, I want to scream No, no, no Don't you believe me? I watch him walk away and wonder if I should follow him. I, I decide against it. I don't want to come off as desperate or panicked. I have no idea what time it was when we were all told to go to sleep. I didn't know which cell was mine until I saw my name scribbled on a piece of paper taped to a door. Next to my name was some other name. Gabby. I walk inside and Gabby is already in the twin bed to the left. There are wood cubbies along the wall on her side. She has all of her belongings in a brown paper bag. I go to the leftover side, and there's some clothes in the cubby. Lights out! Someone yells, and all the lights flick off. The hallway light remains on, which barely makes it through the thick-tinted glass on the door. I reach into the square cubby and pick up what feels like a shirt. I immediately recognized the cloth without needing to see the graphic. The elastic, silky texture forces tears into my eyes. This is the shirt from my first major tournament. I went out to California with my mom and competed in my first ever world championships. I was so nervous to compete. I was cutting weight, shitting my brains out, and dehydrated. The doubt was flowing through my mind like a hallucination. What if I'm not good enough? What if I don't belong here? I stepped on the mat and the thoughts disappeared. Well, everything disappeared. I couldn't hear anything. I managed to maneuver my way through my first fight. I choked the girl and was ready for the second. This tournament had a new system, which eventually made me fight the same girl again. This time, I finished the match much quicker with my signature move, the triangle. I stepped off the mat a world champion, Proving I belonged at the top. (sighs) I don't hear anything about Dr. Shanti until Thursday, but I try to remain patient. The last thing I need is for anyone to think I'm dying to see some psychologist. After the morning group, which is more of the same bullshit, one of the people behind the desk calls my name. I rush over to the counter and I'm told that Dr. Shanti will come get me soon. I sit on the floor by the frosted window and stretch my hips in a butterfly position. I can already feel my flexibility disappearing since I haven't been able to train for a few days. Ugh, this is insane. What a waste. It's going to take me at least a week to get my cardio back, and I have to train for Worlds, the biggest competition in all of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. At this rate, I won't be ready to compete six years of hard work to be the best and it's going to be taken away from me? How is that fair? I've stayed out of trouble, never went to parties, held down a job, and for what? To have some teacher say something and my parents to burn me at the stake? Whatever happened to the benefit of the doubt? (sighs) An Indian guy with glasses strolls in super nonchalantly and calls my name. Finally! I size him up. He seems kind and trusting. Perfect. I feel a little nervous, but also relieved. Okay, now, if I can just explain my parents' divorce combined with their shit parenting skills, and like, sure, sometimes I feel a little bit bummed. Who doesn't? He'll definitely see that, but I'll make sure that's not the focus. I just need him to hear me out. We go into the interrogation room. How are you, Mackenzie? Not good, I reply. Why are you not good? He asks me. Because I don't know why I'm here. What do you mean? There's been a mistake. I'm not supposed to be here, I tell him. Well, what happened? Uh, A teacher at my school reported me and said I made suicidal remarks. And you're saying that's not true? No, it's not. I didn't say anything. Do you feel suicidal? No! Hmm. Well, I've talked to your parents, and they don't seem to be confused as to why you're here. Well, nobody asked me if I was confused. I see you're frustrated. Ugh! This is not going how I planned. I don't want him to think that I'm agitated. I'm not. I'm just yes frustrated because i don't belong here i take a breath (sighs) yes i say carefully i'm frustrated because i don't belong here i see he says i'll call your parents and talk to them about the situation but i'm not sure what will happen not sure what will happen (sighs) what do you mean I say, a little more shrilly than I'd like. We do not discharge on the weekends, and very rarely on Fridays, so you may be with us until Monday. If there was ever a time to kill myself, it would be now. I leave the room and have trouble catching my breath. That went, well, he seemed to hear me, but Monday? Monday? No, I I can't be here until Monday. Monday. A mix of puke and oncoming anxiety attack clogged my airway. I work to stay still, though, and quiet. I I don't want to attract any attention. I go back to the floor by the window and put my forehead against my hands, still trying not to freak out. Breathe. Fuck, I I can't breathe. I try to swallow, but my mouth is completely dry. I I close my eyes. I fight back tears as I bite my tongue hard. Finally, some saliva. I swallow. If I lose it, they'll keep me here. If I lose it, they'll keep me here. I keep repeating. A girl sits next to me on the floor. I look up and see that it's the quiet kid, Erin, who eats her hair. Her red hair and crooked teeth nod to me in solidarity. Maybe she doesn't belong here, too. I try to make the time go faster, even though I still have no idea what time it is. Now, I've really lost track. Erin and I play cards and make small talk. She says she's in for suicidal ideation and asks if I really don't know why I'm here. I tell her adults are fucking stupid and laugh, breaking the no profanity rule. At least she distracts me from the migraine jamming its way into my head. Emo Chris and my roommate Gabby come and sit with us. We deal them into our shitty game of war and talk. So what are you in for? Chris asks me with a look that says he doesn't believe that I don't know. You first, I retort. This time I took a ton of pills. My dad found me on the bathroom floor, and I was basically dead. Last time I was here for cutting, drugs, and suicidal ideation. He starts. Some other kids start sitting around our card game and listening. Motocross Kyle tells us he stabbed his mom with a pencil. He said she made him mad, and when he gets mad, he can't control what he does. Gabby says she's depressed and her meds are messed up. Aaron just wants to die. Why are you here? Chris asks again. I don't know, I tell them, feeling guilty that they all belong here, and I don't. This is a huge mistake. All the kids around me start looking at each other. How did you get here? Gabby asks. I explain the teacher thing that I told Dr. Shanty. That's nuts, Aaron confirms. They need to get you out of here, Chris says. Even these kids know I don't belong here. I hear rumors that there are visiting hours tonight. I spend the day with my new friends waiting. I want to see my parents. Will they come? They, they will, right? I still want to see them even though I can't believe they left me here. Mostly, I want to convince them that they need to help me out of here. But also, I kind of miss them. I miss them in the way that they are my last hope. I miss them like they're the last humans in the entire galaxy. I miss them because they have something I need. And without them, I won't survive. (sighs) The day goes by slowly, when finally, I hear that click. A flurry of parents come into the unit and kids go flying into their arms. I wait for my parents and I make sure I don't look too happy to see them, even though I am. My insides burn as they walk in. I don't hug them. I don't hold their hands. I don't touch them. No touching allowed. We find a spot to sit and I try to look confident. I raise my eyebrows and I sit up super straight. I relax my shoulders away from my ears and let my eyelids soften. I interlock my fingers and leave my forearms on the table. I can tell my mom's pissed. Can you get me out of here? I say. No hello? No apology? My mom asks. Apologize? I spit. For what? You put me here. You have no idea what it's been like in here. If you're going to tell someone you're going to kill yourself, you deserve to be here. I never said those words. I said I don't want to do this anymore because of you. You are not going to sit here and blame me for anything. You want to kill yourself? Well, here you go. This is what happens. You make me want to kill myself, mom. I find myself saying, losing all hope of keeping calm. I try to keep my voice down, but I can barely assess my own volume. All you do is punish me for no reason. You won't let me train anymore. I didn't even do anything. I have to get ready for worlds. I have to compete in three weeks, and you need to try and control everything. I don't want anything to do with you. I don't want to have to live with you for split custody. I don't want you to talk to me. Take your money and get out of my life. You're fucking toxic. Don't worry about worlds, she hisses. You're done training. You're done competing. You're done with everything. Dad, I plead. My dad says nothing. He looks at me like I look at the other kids in the group. His eyes are unmoving and his mouth refuses to open. He agrees with me. You're done. You're not leaving. Enjoy the weekend here because you did this to yourself. Mom gets up from the table and walks straight out of the unit. I look around the room, and, once again, everyone is staring at me. (sighs) The words stick with me all night. I sit on the bed carved with names of all the passing patients, and I think, do I really belong here? Did I do this to myself? Do I really belong in a psychiatric hospital? I just said I was done. Three words. I am done. I didn't think that would sound the alarm. I told Miss J that my parents were fighting for custody and I didn't know what to do. One day, my mom would punish me for cursing. She would hit me where it hurt. She would tell me I wasn't allowed to train. The next day, my dad would reverse her decision just to spite her. I couldn't take it anymore. Punishment after punishment piled up because I was in the middle of their power struggle minefield. I asked for help. I asked for advice. Miss J, I don't know what to do. Mom is saying one thing and dad is saying another. As soon as I listen to the other, I'm grounded. It doesn't matter what I do. I feel trapped. I feel hopeless. I can't do this anymore. I'm done. Did I explicitly say that I wanted to die? No. Did I want to? Well, yes. Did I do this to myself? wow
4: wow that was amazing
3: seriously
1: thank you for being here and joining us today anonymous um just before we get started with this interview life out loud just wants to recognize that stories about suicidality can touch people in unexpected ways we want to share with listeners that if you or someone you know is experiencing difficulties with suicidal thoughts there are resources available to you The Crisis Text Line is here for any crisis, providing free 24 7 mental health support via text. Crisis counselors can help you move from a hot moment to a cool moment and are equipped to deal with all mental health crises. You can contact them by texting home to 741 741. There is also the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which is a national network of local crisis centers. that provides free and confidential emotional support to people in suicidal crisis or emotional distress 24 hours a day, seven days a week in the United States. Committed to improving crisis services and advancing suicide prevention by empowering individuals, advancing professional best practices, and building awareness. Their phone number is 1-800-273-8255 and their website is suicidepreventionlifeline.org. For a list of more resources, please check our website.
5: Um, Thank you so much, Sophia, for reading those resources. Um, So firstly, I just wanted to say that your work is so beautifully written. When I read this, there were tears in my eyes. Um, You have so many different running themes throughout your story, and a specific running idea that I wanted to focus on is the idea that you felt you didn't deserve to be in the hospital. In your words, there's been a huge mistake. I don't belong here. I thought, my, I thought that was abundantly clear, but apparently I was wrong. And as we continue throughout the story, we see you continuously fight against being in the hospital and everything that goes on there. However, at the end of the story, you start to question yourself and whether you truly do deserve to be there and we see you kind of make a concession by saying, Did I explicitly say that I wanted to die? No. Did I want to? Well, yes. Did I do this to myself? And with that cliffhanger ending the story, I wanted to ask you if you'd come to a conclusion in regards to being put in the hospital. Did you belong there?
7: I'm not completely certain that mm-hmm. I did or didn't at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think at that moment, I sort of realized if I was feeling that way and saying those things I should have been there but I also don't feel as though the circumstances were completely fair it was almost like punishment
5: mm-hmm.
7: and mm-hmm. mental health treatment shouldn't be punishment right it, it really was like because like it was just
0: a lot of blame on you like if you were a person that like or, or even are like it it's it's so strange because it's seen as, like, this is what's good for you, like, this is what's best for you, but also, like, deal with it, which was very odd to, like, see your parents.
4: In follow-up to that, do you think you found any resolution to this?
7: I I would say that I did because I was able to seek mental health treatment as a result of the experience. I just wish it had happened a different way. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
4: you also mentioned throughout the story um you do a lot of comparing between yourself and the kids around you and talk about how they're different from you as they talk about like why they're in the hospital and how you're for example thinking about getting discount halloween candy and not this self-improvement that you're being you know meant to be doing how does it feel to reflect and kind of reconcile with the fact that you and the other kids in the hospital maybe aren't so different
7: I think it was really easy to compare myself to others around me, especially, you know, saying, oh, I'm not as bad as them, or um, my feelings are completely different. I think it was really comforting at the time, and I feel that it helped me cope. I now realize that my feelings might not have been so different from the feelings that they were having. My actions Mm -hmm. might have been different, but my feelings were the same, and I think- realizing that similarity was really important especially when getting more help in the in future or in my current life yeah yeah right it it can
5: be easy to judge as a form of you know deflecting
7: and that's that
0: is like I've never thought about it that way as like your feelings are the same but your actions are different and that doesn't mean that one is necessarily like worse than the other or something like that like you were still struggling you just weren't showing it um, in the way that the other kids were yeah
1: Mm -hmm. and going off of Bilal's question anonymous I really appreciated the detail that you put into your descriptions in your story I think you're a beautiful writer I think um the emotions you try to convey come across to me as a reader really well. So kudos on that. And on the topic of descriptions, um, an especially gripping part for me was when you described the nausea you were feeling to Dr. Shanti and that you just wanted to leave. And he tells you that at a minimum, you're staying till Monday. And you described the spit in your mouth. You get into the dizziness you're feeling. Um, and maybe equally as visceral is the description of your parents coming to visit you and their harsh words to you and what they say to you. So I'm wondering what it's like for you to write that in such a detailed way and kind of like relive those moments.
7: Yeah, it's it's almost like a flash. Um, I I will never forget how I felt when I saw them, how I felt when I heard I was stuck there, how I felt realizing the anxiety that was building up around the situation. Mm -hmm. And I felt that it was really easy to translate that into words because I just remembered exactly how it felt. I can, even now I feel my heart pounding remembering the feeling. So I took that emotion and that feeling of just completely trapped and like there's nowhere else to go and I, I put that into words in exactly how I felt and how it it happened like the spit I, I can still remember mm-hmm. it I have it right now so it's it's easy sometimes to be able to write something that you're feeling that had so much momentum in the situation
1: mm-hmm. but I think that's also a sign of a great writer is mm-hmm. that you can turn something that's really painful and like A hard memory into art which is basically what this is so I commend you for it
7: thank
4: you yeah definitely I mean I was reading it and it was like I think it was the longest piece that like with my time on here that I've read but it was so well written that I just kept scrolling to see what happened next because it was so gripping and so harrowing like you were stuck there and the way you opened it up is you don't know we don't know where you are or you know why you're there And then slowly sort of do a great uh, job at world building and sort of construct the whole situation. And we get to know you and your feelings and emotions and, you know, why you're there or why you think you're there.
7: Mm -hmm. And that's, that's how it felt like even circling back to Sophia's question, it felt like falling down a rabbit hole. It felt like I was falling and I couldn't find the bottom. And then finally I hit the bottom and I was like, oh my God, am I really here right now? Is this really happening? So I'm glad it was portrayed in the piece as exactly how it felt. It felt like I was falling. Mm -hmm. And I feel like
0: because you did such an excellent job of that, it makes it like almost relatable to like even people that can't necessarily relate to that feeling. It just gives something to like, Familiarize yourself with, like, as a reader. And I think that is also really cool. Like, that you were speaking to an audience that might not know what these feelings are and yet feels them through you. That's really, really cool. And in that topic of, like, your listenership or your readership,
7: what, if anything, would you like listeners to take away from this story? I really want listeners to just know that even if you're going through something, you're going to hit the bottom. There's a light at the end of the tunnel, even though it's a very cliche statement. Mm -hmm. There's always something positive to take out of something that happens, especially, you know, in this case, it wasn't what I wanted. It was very traumatic. I've had to work on it for for years. I might not even be out at the end of it, but realizing now that I needed help and that I might have sought help in a different way is the main thing that I want readers to realize and take away from this if you need help and you don't think you need help and you get yourself into a situation, maybe taking that step back and saying, oh, did I, did I do this to myself or do I need to be here? Or how did I get here? Is the, the insightful questions that will help you seek that help.
0: That's beautiful. And yeah. I feel like that is a very like probable thing that would happen if for someone to take away from this, like, it, it's just you have written the story that would do exactly that like will accomplish what you want to accomplish and with that wonderful and we want to thank you for being here today anonymous and for sharing this story with us and like a part of your life with us and for giving our listeners like a wonderful takeaway
4: yeah, thank you so much for you.
5: having me thank you thank you
4: thank you That concludes our sixth episode of the sixth season, Toward the Great Escape.
5: We are also excited to bring you new stories soon, amplifying these voices from backgrounds you don't normally hear from. You can always find
3: out more at www.lifeoutloudpodcast.com or by searching Life Out Loud Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or YouTube. We also have an Instagram and Facebook if you want to get behind the scenes
0: content. We'd like to thank everyone who helps make this possible, including our sound engineers and editors, as well as our episode writers and our website developers, everyone behind the scenes here at Life Out Loud.
1: And to our audience, we hope you love these stories as much as we did. It was a joy to bring them to you. A very special thank you to everyone listening in. We'll see you soon. And good night. Goodbye. Good night. Good night.